0: Well, if we are all ready to begin, uh, then I want to talk a little bit about sports, if you'll allow me to, to start the sermon off today. It won't be a big part of what we're talking about, but uh, today, boxing is not the sport that it used to be. I was a big fan of uh, boxing back in the 90s and the 2000s. My dad and I used to watch boxing matches together, and I sometimes feel bad that there's now this generation of young people who are growing up who didn't have the pleasure of watching one of the most exciting boxers of all time make his mark on the sport. From 1986 to 1990, Iron Mike Tyson began a run that was really unlike anybody else's in boxing, collecting title after title, building a reputation for being one of the hardest punchers the sport had ever seen. And not only did most of his wins come by crushing knockout, but it was rare for a Tyson fight to ever get out of the first round. Mike had the kinds of skills that made him definitively better than just about anybody else in the sport. None of his competition really could, could, could uh, compare to him. And people wondered how long it would be before Mike Tyson met a real challenge again. Then on February 11th, 1990, a heavyweight bout between Iron Mike Tyson and soft-centered Buster Douglas seemed all but decided before it began. Buster was a decent heavyweight at the time, but he was such a tremendous underdog in this fight that most betting institutions refused to give odds for the fight. The only one that did put Buster up as a 42-to-1 underdog. Buster was really just a tune-up fight to keep Mike sharp until he had a chance to face Evander Holyfield, who uh, some thought might be the only person who could really give him a test. But I remember watching in total disbelief as a young, pudgy-looking boxer that I had never really even heard of battered the seemingly invincible Mike Tyson around the ring with jab after jab after jab before finally putting together a four-punch combo that knocked him down for good in the 10th round. A dazed Mike Tyson, who probably couldn't believe what was happening to him, tried in confusion to find his mouthpiece on the ground as the referee counted to 10 and called an end to this fight. The mighty had fallen, and the sporting world was utterly shocked. No matter how much we try to convince ourselves that we know what will come to pass, God has a way of surprising us. The preacher of Ecclesiastes reflects on this humbling fact in verses 11 through 12 today, which we're going to take to heart this morning. So if you've got your Bibles open to chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, I'm just going to read these two verses to you that we'll be putting our hearts on. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like a fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon him. Just take a moment with me today to pray as we ready our hearts uh, to take in and process this passage of Scripture. Almighty God, we come before you confessing today that human beings often like to believe that they are in control. We often like to convince ourselves that we know what's going to come next, but only you are omniscient, Lord God. Only you have a clear picture of what will come to pass. We don't know when we will die. We don't know how long we will live or how effective we will be when we are on this earth, God. So please help us to see that while it may be difficult for us to trust you and to embrace the fact that only you know what is to come and that it is your mighty hand that is guiding every event that happens on this world, Father, that we can trust you are a good God, and that your power and authority will not be exercised over us in any kind of an evil way. Glorify yourself by guiding us and teaching us today in your word, and maybe be receptive to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Think of the people that you admire in your life. Perhaps it's people that you know personally, a person in your family that has been like an example to you, a grandmother or an aunt or an older brother or sister Perhaps it's people that you've never met, but they are people with such incredible skills that the world has come to know them. And so though they don't know you, you know them. You've watched their life. You've admired their abilities. Who do you look up to? Who do you have to try really hard not to envy in this life? Whoever it is, they very likely fit into what you have come to think of in your head as the kind of prototypical winner profile. The person that you expect to come out on top is someone who possesses the kinds of qualities that have proven, more often than not, to fit the task at hand. But the world that we live in is far less predictable than we realize it to be. The characteristics that we would use to mark an enviable person are not necessarily going to result in that person's success. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, tells us here that trusting in the limited abilities that we do have often sets us up for predictable failure because our life is not steady. And if we build our foundation upon our own abilities, we are sure to shake and fall. Five categories are mentioned by the preacher of Ecclesiastes and each one brings to mind biblical examples of surprise that give weight to the preacher's claim. The race, we are told, is not to the swift. I've uh, ironically been in 2nd Samuel quite a bit in my personal reading lately. And in this book, chapter 2, Saul, the first king of Israel, has died. He has perished in battle. More accurately, he has taken his own life knowing that he was soon to be captured and fearing the torture that he would have to endure, so he fell upon his sword. David mourns his loss and then is installed as Israel's new king. But there is some confusion and some conflict because Ishbosheth, who is Saul's son, is installed as king over parts of the kingdom. And conflict ensues, as David and Ishbosheth are, in some sense, competing for who will be on the throne. In one battle against these two groups, Azahel, who is one of David's key soldiers, pursues a general who is high in Ishbosheth's army, a man named Abner. Asahel is famous among the Israelites for his foot speed. People know him because he is so fast. He's often compared to a wild gazelle in his ability to run. And so as Abner tries to flee the battlefield, Asahel races after him. The way that the scripture sets it up, it seems as though Asahel will surely prevail, will surely overcome Abner, and we assume that he's going to win. Asahel does catch him, but only to be thrust through by the butt of Abner's spear. And he dies in battle that day. So the race is not to the swift. The battle also is not to the strong. Who is the mightiest man in Scripture? Well, it's Christ, really. But we often think of Samson. Samson, he of the Nazarite vow, who grew his hair long and was promised not to touch a dead body or to drink from the fruit of the vine. The book of Judges tells us of the supernatural strength of this man. Ropes could not bind him. They were like spider webs or flax. In one battle, Samson struck down a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. The weapon did not matter because strength was given to Samson. He was the real weapon. But in Judges 16, we read of how a beautiful and clever lady named Delilah wooed him into uh, not being ready, not being on the alert. And While he was resting, she cut off Samson's hair and caused his strength to flee from him. Samson died a captive to the Philistines. The battle is not to the strong. Bread, likewise, is not to the wise. This one strikes home for the author of our book. Solomon himself knew this all too well. Though there was not a wiser man in the world, according to Scripture, still First Kings 11 records that this man of great wisdom made grave mistakes in judgment and multiplying to himself wives and concubines And these women, many of whom were from foreign lands and worshipped foreign false gods, polluted Solomon's knowledge of God and led him away from closeness to the Lord. His wisdom failed him. It was not a firm foundation upon which he could build his life. Riches are not to the intelligent. In 2 Samuel 16.23, we read that Ahithophel was a man of trusted counsel. His word was like the word of God to many, says the scripture. And yet when he was consulted by Absalom, David's son, who was trying to overcome him, his counsel was rejected in the place of the counsel of a foreigner. And so Ahithophel took his own life for the shame that it caused him. Favor is not with those who have knowledge who had more knowledge than Moses, who according to Acts 7.22 was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And yet he fled for his freedom after breaking their laws by striking down one who was oppressing a fellow Hebrew. Our perceptions of what might be practical advantages in life are not reliable. It is impossible to know the outcomes based on what we see and what we perceive. In fact, we are told here that there are two factors that stand in the way, time and chance. Let's look at this first factor of time. There was a day when a person who wanted to excel in the fields of computer technology would consider schools like MIT or Harvard. But a person who was educated at Harvard or MIT in 1995 might not be equipped at all to handle the ins and the outs of modern day technology. Why? Because of time. 1995 was 25 years ago. Can you imagine the way that technology under the sun has changed since that time? A top-notch 1995 education in computer engineering would hardly scratch the surface of what is required for a software programmer today. The vast majority of the skills that that they garnered, which likely were very expensive to acquire at Harvard or MIT, by the way, would be radically outdated and almost completely obsolete today time has marched on man scrambles to keep up with it no matter how good you are you won't to continue to be that good for long how many men were at the peak of their athletic powers when they were in their 20s and their 30s but today they're 50 and tying the shoes can sometimes be a a realistic challenge to start the day our bodies fade and fail on us they begin to betray us And though there are times in life when we feel like we can accomplish anything, there are other times in the later portions of life when it feels like the very simplest of tasks are a huge undertaking for us. We all likely know someone who is incredibly sharp for most of their life. But now as they reach their retirement years, the mind wrestles to think through things that were simple and almost automatic in earlier times. We can't hardly remember where our keys are at or why we walked into this room in the first place. Success doesn't happen in a vacuum. Whatever good thing you're able to achieve, whatever knowledge you're able to gain, the world continues to march on. Maintaining greatness is often far more difficult than achieving it in the first place. That same Buster Douglas I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon won the title for Mike Tyson. And then he surrendered it himself eight months later at his very first title defense. Times change for changeable creatures like us. But the Lord never changes. The God that we come to worship today, His purposes endure through all the shifts and changes of time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. God is not confined by this thing that so confines us. Though it seems like an irresistible force to human beings, time is powerless to the God who spoke it into being. God does not exist within the confines of time. Rather, time exists within the will of God. And so time cannot limit Him. He cannot be foiled by it. When we compare the best of what we are with the best of what God is, what seems impressive in man is revealed to be rather disappointing. Man's best can only be such for a moment. God is at his best 100% of the time. There are unique qualities about our God that should cause us to stop and take pause and to realize how truly holy he is. And one of those qualities is the fact that God is unlike us because he's immutable. The word immutable means that he never changes and we've spoken about this some in previous scriptures in Ecclesiastes but I want to bring it up again. Many of the characteristics that we lift up in man are completely absent in God. We admire a person who's a good learner. God doesn't learn anything. Did you know that? Because God already knows all things. He has perfect knowledge and as time marches on he's not gaining anything new. He has already known all that would happen before it was ever spoken into existence. So God is not a good learner. He doesn't learn. He is a good knower. He knows all things. And that never changes. We admire someone who has good opinions. But God has no opinions whatsoever. For he cannot speculate. He simply declares what is best. His word is always true. He doesn't guess. He will not be better tomorrow, though there is always something new and amazing that we can learn about Him, no matter how hard we study about Him, no matter how hard we pursue Him, there's always something great and beautiful that we didn't understand before that we understand more fully now. But it's not because God has changed. It's not because His character has progressed. It's because He is so vast that His resources are endless and we can never frustrate them. He will continue to be the personification of perfection for all eternity, and we will never waver from the wonderful reality of what he is. As we read in our call to worship today, Malachi 3:16, I the Lord do not change, so you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. What a wonderful declaration. The fact that God cannot change means that his promises are absolutely sure. It's the reason why when Abraham obediently took his son Isaac, his son of promise, up the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice to God, he, do so, he did so knowing full well that God had to bring Isaac back to, from the dead if he was to sacrifice him. Why? Because God had promised to make a nation from, from Isaac. And so how can God break a promise? If God is asking me to sacrifice my son, he must bring life to him again. He went with confidence knowing that this God who is immutable cannot change and so he would not be disappointed in God's outcomes. Let me encourage you friends because he is immutable there is no wisdom in this world that you can gain that is better as an investment of your time and energy and focus than wisdom concerning the Lord and his word. Nothing better There might be something that might pique your interest a little more right now because it's new and you haven't seen it before. It might be something that's popular and other people like it, so you want to be able to talk with them and so you run after that thing. But there is no better investment of your time and energy than studying after the word of the Lord. Whatever you can come to know about the unchanging God, it will not become obsolete. It cannot be displaced by some new information. It will not be completely different 25 years from now. Unlike computer technology, unlike automotive technology, unlike knowledge of art and pop culture. In contrast, what you learn about fashion will need to change with time. And your knowledge of automobiles will die as electronics replace internal combustion engines. I'm feeling that right now, and I'm bitter about it. (laughs) Your wisdom of economics will evolve as supply and demand changes in the world and markets change and attitudes towards those markets change. But God stays steady through it all. Know Him well and you will never be disappointed in that knowledge. You will never gain for yourself a degree in the Lord God that is not useful tomorrow. If you are seeking knowledge of Him, that knowledge will follow you into eternity. Now to be fair, there have been some ups and downs across the history of theology. What is popular does tend to have its impact on what people say is right about God. But while man's perception of God may change over time, God himself does not. Good theology is going to be then, by its nature, classical. The best understandings you have of God are not the newest, most innovative understandings of God, but rather they are the understandings of God that have withstood the test of time. Learn to distrust new and innovative understandings of who God is. If this God does not change, then why would we want a new perception of who He is? The way we perceive Him doesn't need to be reinvented in each new generation. In fact, we are saved because He does not change. The covenant is kept because He does not waver. A good work done in helping man see God for who He is should continue to carry its force and power over centuries. Not just because it set a precedence and spawned a new trend, but because it's talking about the God who is stable and steadfast. So you can pick up John Calvin's Institutes today and be tremendously blessed by the systematic ways that he writes about the nature and power of our God. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress was written in 1678 about the pitfalls of trying to follow God. In the, in the world that we live in today that is so plagued by sin and yet you read his struggles and they're not different in almost any way than what we deal with today because what John Bunyan cared about was the unchanging God and our approach to him. So read that book and be blessed as you see how a Christian can gird themselves up under the strains of living in a fallen society. Invest in something that will not lose its importance to you as you transition from your green years to your gold years. Seek to know the one who never changes and what you come to know of his enduring character will serve you well throughout your life on earth. The second factor that equalizes those who are perceived to have significant advantages over others is the factor of chance. How many times have we seen someone with the best of intentions put together a great plan put together an excellent praiseworthy agenda of how they're going to reach the world for the Lord and then something unforeseen comes up. I met a young guy at seminary who desired to go out to China and share the gospel with people there. He was going to commit his life to it just before he developed a, an unforeseen problem with his heart and the doctor said if you go to China you're probably not going to live because you've you've got to take care of this issue. You have to stay here. What terrible chance for that young man who desired to do a good thing, who desired to care for his Lord and to care for the lost in a place that wasn't hearing about the Lord. And yet chance kept him from doing that. Or so the world would say. You see, technically, there is no such thing as chance as we're used to talking about. There's no such thing as luck. God is unlike us in that He is immutable. God is also unlike us in that He is sovereign. He is a God who controls all things. As much as we would scramble to try to gain control of our lives, to be able to dictate where our days are headed and what is going to come for us in the future, we cannot do that. God alone has the power to say, this will be, and then to make it come to pass exactly so. All things occur according to the counsel of His perfect will. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, No counsel can avail against the Lord. He says it, and it is so. One of my favorite authors is a pastor named J.C. Riley from a couple hundred years ago. He says, Just as the telescope and the microscope show us that there is order and design in all the works of God, of God's hands, from the greatest planet down to the least insect, so does the Bible teach us that there is wisdom order, and design in all of the events of our daily life. There is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in the Christian journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God, and all things are working together for the believer's good. What is he referring to there? He's referring to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that says that God works all things together for the good to those who love him, and are called according to His purpose. So for us to think that something happens to us based simply on random statistics, that the dice were rolled and we just happen to be the unlucky character today, that is to turn our eyes away from this grand theology, this doctrine of God's sovereignty. He is over all and working His will in all and through all. Now, I grant that our lack of sovereignty for our own lives is a great source of frustration for us. We wish we were sovereign. God's sovereign is a mystery for us that we can't entirely solve. We don't know His way or His wills. We can't entirely know exactly what's before us, even though He does know it. And that can strain our hearts and minds at times. It can make us anxious about what's to come. But here we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, that chance seems to happen to everyone for the simple reason that we don't understand God's sovereignty. The word chance is probably not the best word there anyway. The word chance can be translated chance. It can also be translated as simply events. Events happen to everyone. Circumstances happen to everyone. God has a number of events planned for you that you have not yet seen for this year to come. And when they come, one after another, he will use each of these events to procure his will in your life, to grow you, to challenge you, to reveal things about you that need to be sanctified because that is what sovereign God does. But that doesn't mean that you are lucky or unlucky. It means that God is in control and you are not. Even when you look back at the Old Testament practice of casting lots, sometimes when the nation of Israel would have a question that they didn't have an answer to, they would cast lots, almost like a way of, of throwing the dice or flipping a coin today. But they would do it not thinking that luck was going to cause their their nation to choose one thing or the other, but knowing that God's hand was in charge of even the lots lots that were, were cast before the people. So if those lots were cast in a certain way because Israel was their nation, they knew that was God saying, this is the way you need to go. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So let's not make the mistake of getting caught up into this, this secular mentality that some people are lucky and some people just aren't. Or maybe today's my lucky day. If you know that there is a God and he is sovereign, you are lucky every single day. You are blessed with the grace of a knowledge that you could not discover apart from his intervention in your life. And we should praise God for the way that he's working out his will in you and through you. There are great dangers in trying to live Lucky. When we think we need to pursue luck, then often what we're doing is we're trying to create a new type of works mentality for ourselves that is not effort-based but is, was knowledge-based. I've got to figure out the secret to being lucky. I've got to have the right combinations of things that I do that will make God's favor fall upon me. This is just works gussied up as superstition. When we think about the events that happen to us that are out of our control We need to remember that there is a God who is firmly in control. We need to turn to Him in prayer and ask that as we walk through these things that He will guide our steps, that He will give meaning to what often to us seems random. The sovereign God who never changes rules over the ever-changing world that you are a part of. No matter how hard you try, your strengths cannot eliminate all the variables because you do not determine your ways apart from His sovereignty. If there is such a thing as chance, but there are all these events beyond our control, but in God's control, then we can see our struggles with a sense of expectation that we can grow in holiness if we cling to Christ through these things. Verse 12 says, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. It's talking about the day of death. And Solomon is not saying here that God is evil for taking our lives away from us. He is showing us that when we are living with an under the sun mentality, it feels like a a, a bad thing that our lives are taken away from us. It feels like a loss when we lose a loved one. But the hand of God is involved with all of it. While we romantically envision ourselves as the captain of our own soul, it is more accurate to think of ourselves as the fish who swim about until the net pulls us up or we pass away naturally, both events that are out of our own grasp, but firmly in God's. And so as we consider the instruction that Solomon is giving to us here, we need to think about the takeaways. Friends, if you have gifts, if you are skilled, if you are possessing those attributes that others might envy, then do not rest in those skills. Do not rest in your strengths. If you have money, do not trust in it. If you have a sharp mind, do not glory in it. If you have might, do not boast in it. All of these things are from a strong God. They are blessings and gifts, and we should thank Him for them. But it is all too easy to think that these gifts are a surety against failure or against struggle, and they just simply aren't, friends. Since the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the strong, since bread is not necessarily the spoils of the wise and because riches do not go exclusively to the intelligent, since favor is not to those with great knowledge, it makes sense for us to draw one more conclusion based on this pattern that Solomon has pointed out to us. Salvation is not to the righteous. Salvation does not come to those who follow all the rules perfectly. Consider the church that Jesus has built for Himself. This exercise could extend to the church throughout the world. But let's just think of this body gathered here right now. Did God choose a people for Himself who were an all-star cast of the most holy individuals that He could find? Let's be honest, friends. Look in this congregation. Did Jesus seek out the most righteous, the most inherently faithful, the most spotlessly pure people in our community and assemble them together to represent Him here on this earth, I humbly confirm to you that He did not. He chose sinners. He chose broken people. He chose people who could not make their lives into what they wanted them to be. He chose people that were lost and needed finding. He chose people who were blind and needed a supernatural sight that they could not grasp for themselves. God doesn't save the righteous he saves sinners. And that is what he did with us. All Christians can and, can and should rejoice in the great twist of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Perhaps you're familiar with this passage. Where the Apostle Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. If your sin's not on the list yet, it's implied. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And yet verse 11 shines hope into the darkness. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God has chosen to take sinful, unrighteous people and to make them righteous through the righteousness of Christ. You see the passive nature of what had, hap- had to happen to us in order for our sin to be overcome. In saving us, God did not seek out a holy people for there were none. He sought out sinners like us Sinners who could not solve the riddle of righteousness. Sinners who could not work their merits up to a a level that was acceptable for heaven. He took us in our brokenness and he made us holy. He washed us and sanctified us. He declared us righteous by the sacrificial works that his son accomplished on our behalf. Oh, praise God. that does not only reward the ones who are themselves worthy. Praise the God that instead, by His amazing grace, surprises us and takes us beyond what we could ever be apart from His intervention. Indeed, He gently helps us to see that apart from Him, we really are nothing. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells his people in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12-13, through 13, which is often a misunderstood text. He tells them, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Keep that up on the screen for a second, sound booth. Without the benefit of knowing that God's generous grace is the bedrock and beginning of our ability to obey God and to draw near to Him, then many have read these words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And they have interpreted that to mean that we need to do our very best to be worthy of the kingdom of heaven, that we must strive and strain to somehow muster up enough good works and personal righteousness that at the end of our lives, we might present it all to our God that we might keep it onto that scale of justice and watch as the tides turn and hopefully our good deeds will be just enough to outweigh the wickedness, to outweigh all the sinful ways that we have dishonored God by breaking his law and he'll find us worthy and let us in. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is the misunderstanding that many see when they see this passage. But the fear and the trembling in that scenario comes from never really knowing if what you have done is good enough. Never really knowing whether you've been pleasing to God to such a degree that He will accept you into His heaven. And he will reward you with forgiveness. But that's not the fear and trembling that Paul's talking about. We can t- take such greater comfort knowing this. Salvation is not to the righteous. It is from the righteous. It is from the righteous God. It is from His hand that we become righteous. And so we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we live out the salvation that has been given to us and we are in awe and in wonder of this God who would do such an amazing thing for us. When we come near to this God who we're just saying, How great Thou art, who is holy and pure and unlike us. It should stir our hearts and we should have a sense of reverent fear for Him. There should be trembling before God, but not because He's casting us away or because we not not be good enough but because he's chosen to bring us into his presence in the first place, friends. What a beautiful, beautiful truth that he would love us like that. And what great assurance there is in knowing that we can come forward and love him back and worship him because he has transformed us and made us new. Why fear and trembling? Because we exist alongside a God who is amazing and who is eternal and unchanging and who is sovereign over our very lives. Be still and know that he is God, church. Be at peace knowing that he is good and that if you trust in the mighty son, that salvation comes from him. God is the one who is at work in you, changing both your will and your work to match his good pleasure. Be in awe of him and do not mistake who is in control. Would you bow with me for a moment as we have a word in conclusion? Lord, we thank you for the amazing Amazing grace that you have given to us through Christ, your Son. And Father, we confess that there are times when our security is found in our own ability, Lord God. It is truly on thin ice. That our peace is based on what we know, Lord God, and we know so very little. And much of what we know is not even right. God, that our Our feeling of acceptance is based on what people tell us about who we are instead of based on what your true word has declared about us. Father, please forgive us for these mistaken thoughts. I pray, Lord God, that as we come before your word and we see that you are the one who sovereignly guides all things, that your sovereign hand is the powerful force that we must learn to trust and appreciate, Lord God, that you would give us a great joy in knowing that you are the one who's calling the shots and who's declaring his will Father, may we not ever endeavor in the futile battle against you, trying to make our own will come to pass when really what we need to pray is for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on heaven as it is in earth, on earth as it is in heaven. So thank you, God, for this time. Please bless us as we enter into a time of fellowship around your table. In Jesus' name, amen.